Welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project, brought to you from Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, my name is Christopher Cotter, and I'm joined by... My name's David Robertson, and the podcast is brought to you as ever um, by the British Association for the Study of Religions. As we prepare for teaching starting in earnest this week, as the... Um, UK academic, well, the, the Scottish academic year gets into full swing. Uh, we bring you uh, a conversation that David recorded with Jeffrey Kripal on the supernatural and the new comparativism. Um, I'm quite intrigued by this, David. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to hearing it. I don't want to spoil it for you. Let's just uh, let's just roll the audio. Take it away, guys. I'm joined today by Jeffrey J. Kripal, who is the uh, J. Newton Razor. Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University in Houston, Texas. His most recent book is Comparing Religion, published last year, but the conversation today um, is going to be building more from his uh, 2010 book, Authors of the Impossible, The Paranormal and the Sacred, and its uh, companion volume from 2011, Mutants and Mystics, Science Fiction, Superhero Comics and the Paranormal. Um, Thanks for taking part in the Religious Studies Project, first of all. Thanks thanks for having me, David. Um, absolute pleasure. And I thought it would be the best place to start would be to maybe tell us about how you got to the kind of material in um, Mutants and Mystics and Authors of the Impossible from your earliest work in kind of Hinduism and mysticism and these kind of things. Yeah, well, it's it's been a long journey. I... Um... I was sort of trained fairly classically in the religions themselves. I, I started out in a Benedictine monastic seminary and um, was fascinated with the history of Christian mystical literature um, and got very interested in the question of, of sexual orientation and male mystical literature. And that's what essentially took me to India and got me interested in Hinduism and and the Hindu Tantra. And so my early work was all really um, orbiting around this question of the relationship between human sexuality, particularly male sexuality, and and uh, comparative mystical literature. Um, somewhere around 2000, 2005 or so, I, I felt like I had sort of exhausted those questions um, maybe not answered them definitively, but to my own satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I wanted to move into uh, another area. And so I engaged in a long-term project on the California human potential movement uh, around a place called Esalen and um, spent about seven years uh, interviewing people and, and reading uh, into those literatures. Um, and I kept encountering individuals and stories, stories that I knew couldn't have possibly happened, but that I knew happened. Um, I mean, these were individuals I trusted, often I had known for years, and they were explaining to me in great detail experiences that were just simply over the top uh, and, and extraordinary in every sense. And, and of course, the modern vocabulary or language for those events is, is paranormal. Uh, and I realized as I struggled with those stories that I had studied mystical literature for two decades at that point, and I had never read a single book on 
these capacities or these kinds of experiences right. that we that we'd essentially taken them off the table. Um, and so I set out to write Authors of the Impossible really as a kind of intellectual history of how those questions and capacities were taken off the academic table. Um, it was just my way of trying to understand how, how incapable I was personally, but the field as a whole in addressing these really quite common experiences. And then Mutants and Mystics was an application of the kind of the theory and the intellectual history of authors to a particular historical complex, in this case, American popular culture in the form of science fiction and, and comic books. And really what I was most interested in there was the paranormal experiences of writers and, and artists and how they took those experiences and turned them into art. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of the story in brief. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Um, I was I, I was actually wondering when you were you were talking there about this the the the, the I, these sort of experiences being taken off the table. Do you think that's equally the case in in like in the study of classical Hinduism, for instance, or um, or uh, you know? shamans or something like that or is this a particular quality of when we're studying the modern age well i think both are true david i i think there's two things going on there <clears throat> i think when you look at studies of classical hinduism or for that matter studies of buddhism or christianity mm -hmm. or islam mm -hmm. or any of them when Scholars have traditionally run into miracle stories or miraculous healings or magical powers. The sort of baseline assumption is that these are all legends yeah. and exaggerations. And so they're never really taken seriously. They're taken as, as fantasy or as a pious exaggeration. Mm -hmm. What's so, what was so productive for me personally was realizing that these things actually do happen all the time. They're quite real in the modern world, real in the sense that they happen. And I realized that if they happen to my my uh, my friends and my colleagues in California or here in Houston or wherever, then obviously they could have and probably did happen in the past as well. And so I realized that we really actually can't take all of these stories as simple legends or simple fantasies, that if we take the phenomena seriously in the present, just by sheer logic, we're forced to take these experiences more seriously in our historical materials. Now, that doesn't mean they haven't been exaggerated and polished and et cetera, et cetera, all these things we know about mm -hmm. history. Mm -hmm. But it does change, I think, the way we study these historical traditions. The other thing I'll say is, there is a general unspoken rule in the study of religion that we can treat with sympathy any extraordinary or miraculous event in the past or in a non-Western culture, particularly if it's in a dead language that almost no one reads, mm -hmm. then it's, it's fine. But if these things happen in our backyard or on a military base or in someone's bedroom, then suddenly they're not fine. Yeah. Suddenly, suddenly people need to make fun of them or say something snarky. Um, 
we we seem unwilling to treat the fantastic seriously in the present. Yeah. Uh, even though we will treat it with some respect in the past or in another culture. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen that personally. I've done uh, fieldwork with uh, David Icke, for instance, and Whitley Stryber, who you know as well. And um, I was obviously when you tell people you're working on these kind of cases and they automatically start, you know, making jokes about tinfoil hats and um, or often implying that these people are um, inventing the stories whole cloth to make money. Um, but once you spend time with these people, you realize that's not the case. These are not um, mentally ill or unusually paranoid people. They're, they're very normal people and in most cases, very nice and uh, intelligent people. Um, and it really forced me to kind of to to rethink the way that, you know, that these uh, experiences are are othered in a, in a different way in the modern world than they have than they would be when we're talking about a mythological situation. Well, I think those snickerings and those tinfoil hats are subtle rhetorical ways that our culture takes these things off the table. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we, all we all you have to do is make fun of them and then you no longer have to think about them. Mm -hmm. But but if you take them seriously and you keep them on the table, suddenly you have to think about them. And they're incredibly strange and they clearly violate the way we're told the world works. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're they're dramatic ontological or metaphysical provocations. Um, and I think that's why we don't address them. Another aspect that uh, I think challenges some aspects of how we tend to think in religious studies is is the case studies that you use um, in the in the books. I don't think any of them are what we would conventionally think of as religious studies kind of subjects. Um, I mean, particularly kind of. Uh, Philip K. Dick, I suppose, has had a bit of attention, but people like Charles Fort haven't really had a lot of um, attention, or Jacques Vallee, for instance. Um, and But most of the work that is done in these kind of uh, abduction scenarios or something is coming from a very different direction than you are. I think it tends to be coming from this kind of um, new religious movements, cultic studies kind of approach, which which often amplifies this kind of marginalization and othering of the experience, looking at it as a deviant thing or um, or its relationship to violent cults or so on and so forth. Right. I think the the, the general approach to these these movements has been sociological. It's been this, through the sociology of religion. Yeah. The study of NRMs or new religious movements, and those approaches never really get at the truth claims. They never really get at the ontological shock that is at the core of these experiences. They just they sort of stay on the the social surface, as it were, uh, which I'm sure they'd argue is the social depth. Um, but but they're they're doing something differently that I think is important, but I'm not particularly interested in. Let's deal with the, the ontological kind of question then. So I think that's quite important. I don't think you're necessarily arguing. In fact, you, you state on several occasions that you're not arguing that we should be necessarily treating these as ontologically real, but 
you seem to be arguing for a, a different approach. Is that is that correct? Have I got that right? So I'm deeply interested in the ontological question because that's the question for the experiencers and the people who have gone through these sorts of events. That's that's the most significant thing about that how they see and experience the texture of reality. Yeah. So I don't understand how as scholars we can just bracket that. Um, I understand why we can't answer that question, but I don't agree that we should just push that question off to the side. Um, in terms of my own sort of ontological commitments, my my gut feeling about all of this, I, I, I'm not a believer in the sense that I don't think these are, you know, little extraterrestrials coming in machines from the sky and abducting people, or I don't believe in the literal existence of uh, jinn and, and uh, fairies or, or, or angels and, and gods for that matter. But having said that, it's apparent to me that what every, every religious experience in all of human history has in common is that it was an event that occurred within human consciousness. Yeah. And that consciousness really is at the base of everything we're talking about. And that these most extreme and fantastic religious experiences might well be our best clues as to what the nature of consciousness really is below or above our, our social egos and these sort of superficial forms of awareness that, that uh, you and I are in at the moment. Mm -hmm. So for me, consciousness is the ground of all religious experience. It's, it's what I like to call the new sacred. Um, as you well know, uh, people in, a number of people in the field have been making fun of Rudolf Otto and Nucci Eliadi for decades now around this notion of the sacred as sui generis or, mm. or having its own irreducible nature. But the fact is that consciousness is sui generis. We know of nothing else like it in the universe, and we don't have a clue what it is. Yeah. It is its own thing. It is literally and truly sui generis. Um, and so my gut feeling is that what our our intellectual ancestors called the sacred, we can best frame today as, as consciousness as such. And by that, I do not mean the ego. I do not mean David or Jeff. I mean that form of awareness that's, that's groundless and, and, and empty, to, to use the Buddhist language, but which is, is the... Is, is what gets shaped into every human experience, including every religious experience. Right. Um, so that, that's my, my sort of base ontological commitment. What, what that means, I, again, I don't know. I don't claim to know what consciousness is. I, I don't think we can know it in principle. It's not an object. It's not a thing. It can't be measured. You know, it, it's what the mystical traditions call, call the ground. You know, it's, it cannot be known. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. See, that's a, this is the problem I think we get into. It's a classic philosophical problem. Yeah, okay, that that makes 
That makes sense. And David, to go back to your first question, so I started out in my professional life studying mystical literature, which is all about the nature of consciousness. And the reason I'm so interested in paranormal experiences today is because I think they tell us something about consciousness. And I think what they tell us is that consciousness and the physical world are not separate. Um, a paranormal experience is always also a paranormal event. It's some physical event in the environment that corresponds perfectly to some mental event in the in the subject or in the, the human being. And so by by structure it breaks down this sort of Cartesian notion that I'm a I'm a kind of ghost in a brain looking out onto a material world. Mm -hmm. All of that disappears in a in a in a robust paranormal event and suddenly the material and the mental are just two sides of the same something. Um, and, and so I think I see a real organic development between those two those two projects. Yeah, I mean, I, I follow that too. I mean, the that way of framing the, the the sacred as consciousness is it's a particular kind of um, model of what religion is, for instance. But it it kind of works as a model in its own right, I think. Right, and you know, it doesn't work. I mean, it wouldn't fit a sort of Durkheimian kind of model, but on the other hand, it does work quite well with the in the in the sort of mystical tradition that you're talking about, or where you started off. Then yes, it makes it makes a great deal of sense. Right, and that's what I was just going to say. I, I don't mean to say that consciousness as such is going to help us much with why certain people are in the pews or at the mosque or in the temple and why others aren't, or yeah. what the role of religion and politics or the environment may or may not be. That, but those are not my questions. Mm -hmm. my, my questions have always been about the extreme religious experiences that in fact originate or generate religious traditions. I'm, I'm after the, you know, kind of the Hadron Collider. Yeah. Of that. I, I, I really don't care what happens when you drop an apple from a tree or when you roll a bowling ball down an incline. I, I, I could care less. I care about what's going on in the, the collider. The, the Hadron Collider. What what is the nature of matter itself? What what is the nature of the human being? Um, you know, beyond and, and after the these little social and political and religious egos that we we imagine ourselves to be. Yeah. There was um there's a nice little bit I was looking over um Authors of the Impossible again, um just preparing for this, and there was a nice little bit where you wrote um I think I'm paraphrasing you. Uh, you described the psychical as the sacred in transit from a traditional religious register into a modern scientific one. And you then defined the paranormal as the sacred in transit from both religious and scientific registers into a para parascientific or science mysticism register. So does that mean you see the the paranormal then as representing something new emerging is that what i'm is that right well yeah that's a very yeah so i'm drawing kind of implicitly on on charles fort there with the early psychical research tradition of the late 19th century they really thought that science was going to 
win the day and solve, crack this, these questions right. for them. It's like the, the Theosophical th- Society's logo, you know, the, the, the aim of science, but the, the method of science, but the aim of religion. Right. They thought that they could, science really could crack the code. Mm. Um, and, and the early uses of the paranormal were similar. I mean, what, what the French researchers meant by the paranormal was the normal that was still beyond our present scientific models. Right, yeah. That, yeah. You know, that we, we'd eventually get it, but we don't yet. But when you get to a figure like Charles Ford, uh, or you get to the later ufology stuff, what you realize is that <laughs> the religious register doesn't work anymore, but neither does the scientific register. Yeah. And this whole notion that science is going to somehow tell us everything with these reductive mechanical and mathematical models is just not true. And and so what the paranormal becomes later in the 20th century is a kind of trickster. It's a kind of provocation that can't be slotted into religion or science. And that that's what I meant in that latter phrase that, right. you, you know, to use Foucault here, there's a kind of new episteme. There's a new... There's a new model emerging, but but we don't yet have a name for it. Right, um, right. and it, the, it it is interesting because it's one of the biggest differences between the sort of Victorian um, uh, case studies that you're looking at, and then when you get to certainly by the by the 80s when you get kind of the abduction narrative and so on emerging in the UFO community, there's a strong critique of scientific materialism. There's no longer um, any faith, if you want to use that word, that uh, science will be able to explain the phenomena whatsoever. And that's actually partly why the kind of, why conspiracy theories and stuff start to emerge in that world, because it is this, you know, challenging of the contemporary episteme in all of its forms. Right. And of course, the, the problem with the conspiracy theories is that, <laughs> you know, they're all offering some solution. Uh, behind the scenes as well they're they're not able to sit with the question or or sit in the uncertainty of it all that they have to posit some grand conspiracy that's working behind the scenes so it's it there are kinds of reductions in their own right um i i personally so what i think i think the other real issue here david is and the reason we can't really deal with this yet is that we lack a sufficiently nuanced theory of the imagination. Right. Um, you know, what makes the the paranormal experiences so problematic for people is their Baroque nature, their, their absurd uh, content, um, their, what we would used to call their symbolic content. Uh, and, you know, when we think of the imagination today, all we think of is the, is the imaginary. We just think of fluff, fantasy, daydreaming. But of course, historically, the imagination could also function as a kind of mediator between different levels of being or different forms of mind. So I think what we really need is a way of treating these visionary, these visionary experiences, not literally, but, but symbolically again. And we seem to have lost that at the moment. So is that what you're referring to when you talk about this sort of new comparativism that you've mentioned a few places? Is that 
uh, is that what you're kind of moving towards in, in in involving this new approach? Well, yeah, except it's an old approach. I mean, in some ways, there's nothing new about the symbol, you huh. know, as a med- as a mediator. I when I talk about the new comparativism, I I, I suppose I mean something fairly general. I I mean that, hey, we need to listen to all the critiques that have been advanced over the last 30, 40 years. They're all essentially correct. Um, But we don't need to fetishize difference and demonize sameness like we've been doing. Can't we get back to some kind of balance where we can recognize both difference and sameness in the historical materials and in in our own humanity? And and I, I just think the field has swung so far to to difference that we were we've landed in a kind of solipsism or or series of silos and we can't speak to each other anymore. Mm-hmm. And we need some we need new models that can acknowledge the differences but also acknowledge the sameness. And my own proposal for that is is consciousness. I, I think consciousness um, even though you can't identify any any particular content or structures of that, um, that 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 you could say this is what all human beings are about. It's that's not the case, and that's that's the critique, of course, as well. Mm-hmm. So by the new comparativism, I just I I basically mean a, a, a revised and revisioned comparativism that's learned from the critiques, but doesn't just doesn't buy into the the, the 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 fetishization of difference and also is skeptical of the the base materialism we've all turned into materialists mm-hmm. um, you know if you're in a materialist world every human being is simply a function of its local context and its its body and its own social practices there's no way to get one human being from one place in time to speak to another from another place in time, because all we are are our material bodies and their historical context. But once you posit a different ontology, one that recognizes consciousness um, um, as something that's not material, then suddenly you have a way of, of conversing and talking across space and time. Um, and so that's really what I have in mind there. That's uh, that's great, yeah. And I was just struck by us talking across this great vast of uh, space, uh, but unfortunately, we're running low on time. Perhaps we could end by uh, telling us uh, wh- where are you taking this next? What's next for you on this uh, particular? Well, um, actually, Whitley Strieber and I have just sent. Where uh, it's called the supernatural three words. And it's a conversation. It's an open, open-hearted, open-minded conversation between Willie and myself about his own extraordinary experiences and what the study of religion might have to say to them. It's an attempt to open up a conversation between the experiencers and the scholars and, and sort of move the conversation forward. Well, for obvious reasons, I'm pretty excited about that. Maybe we'll try and, um, try and arrange something else when the book comes out. If we could get Whitley involved, that would be um, really quite fascinating. But for now, anyway, I'll just say uh, thanks to you, Jeffrey, for taking part. Thank you. All right. Thank you, David. It's been fun. Let Great. Me, and do invite me back. I'll, I'll certainly come back. Another 
Excellent interview, as ever. Good to hear you getting back into the interviewing game, David. Not that you've ever left it, but we've got quite a few more David Robertson interviews There's a few more Robertson interviews this year, yes, than there was last year. Um, Because I don't have to finish a PhD this year, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't don't say any more about finishing PhD (laughs) right now. Sore topic. Um, So yes, thanks to Jeffrey there. Next Hopefully week. we'll have another interview with him in the future. Yeah. He's, he's one of these people that half an hour doesn't really do justice to. Absolutely. Um, next week um, we're bringing you uh, Martin Lepage talking with uh, Meredith McGuire on her uh, sort of lived religion concept. That's from a, a book from the, the early 2000s that's uh, caught on quite a lot in, in both the sociology of religion and the anthropology of religion. Um, so I'm looking forward to that interview. She's a, a big name. Um, I'm also you know, looking forward to... I know I would have had a lot of questions about the topic of lived religion had I been uh, doing the interview. So. It'll be interesting to see how it compares to our interviews on vernacular religion with uh, Marion Bowman and uh, Leonard Primiano. Yeah, uh, and indeed material religion and the phenomenology of religion. Indeed, uh, indeed. So we've had quite a summer. Uh, I I need a holiday after that summer. Um, we were both at the um, International Association for the History of Religions twenty um, first World Congress in uh, Erfurt in Germany. Um, that was at the end of August uh, for a full week. Oh, David had to go to another conference. Of course, what was that? That was the. Um Morality of Millennialism in um, in Queen's University in Belfast, which I'd already been um, booked to speak at, so I had to skip out on yeah. on Thursday morning and fly to uh, Ireland, yeah. to Northern Ireland. So. And uh, and then I've uh, been at the uh, our, our annual sort of RSP Energy Booster, the the British Association for the Study of Religions annual conference which this year was at the university of kent in canterbury um who were also celebrating their the 50th anniversary of the the department down there at kent um david gonna make it with, with airford and belfast um, just too many conferences to be managing with uh you know real life well uh, yeah children specifically well, yeah that's fine but i wasn't um at, at the basr in milton keaton's last year so um you know it's good to have at least one of the the, the, the RSP founders. <laughs> I did. I skyped in for the uh, committee meeting, which was uh, it worked quite well. It was quite it, futuristic, it actually. I quite yeah, enjoyed I liked it. it. Well, maybe post uh, um, Suzanne took a few good good shots of that meeting and and, and around that. Um, well, apart from just telling you that we've been doing, yeah. That, well, the, the, we we did a lot of there was a lot of RSP um, activity at the International Association, yeah. particularly where we recorded seven interviews um a round table and our christmas special which this year is going to be something Something quite epic i think we may have we may have actually topped previous years yeah and um just a big thank you to um elizabeth and and the organizers at airport for being incredibly accommodating absolutely Um, they were they were really incredible they went out of their way to um fit us in when we threw a christmas special at them with a few days to go in what must have been a logistical nightmare to organize so our sincere uh, thanks to them for um, helping us out and you know at airford i attended a session on uh, a vat camp session on Mm. digital humanities where we we discussed podcasts and the rsp was you know um i think quite quite rightly 
lauded for for what we do, but there there was also a large discussion about where is podcasting going in the study of religion and more broadly in academia. So um, that's given us some good food for thought. Um, mm-hmm. And already, uh, well, David and I sat down over a couple of uh, beers in the sun in Erfurt and uh, and really thrashed out a, the, a vision for for the RSP, which we're still still fine tuning. But uh, we, we, that's going to be published, I think, in the BASR bulletin, and maybe maybe we can put it on our site as well. I don't know how interested your average listener would be, but nonetheless, it'll be there, and people will have the um, the ability to to comment and, and let us know. And one of the one of the major things that's come up recently is the audio quality, which we're working very hard to improve. And um, hopefully you'll have noticed the difference today with our um, new recording equipment, which costs us, um, well, some money. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be pecuniary. Yes. But um, n- nonetheless, we're, we're working hard on the to address people's concerns. And also, the, you know, the transcriptions was another thing that many people asked for. Yeah. Um, just to, you know, update you, um, the, the, the BSR who, who have supported us from the, the beginning, um, both being the context in which the RSP was born and supporting us, um, initially sort of collegially and then financially, mm. uh, um, uh, there's been a sort of committee change there. Um, we've had, uh, uh Graham Harvey, um, it as, finished his term as, as president and we're very grateful to him for the constant support and celebrating the, the RSP. Um, and Bettina Schmidt, um, uh, finished her six year term as a BSR secretary. So, uh, again, uh, I could say for everyone on the committee that they've been incredibly supportive and, um, and David Wilson, who was, uh, co-editing the, the bulletin with you, um, for, life reasons he's doing running a very successful bookshop in london he, he he's had to to step away from the committee leaving david as the dicta, dictatorial power over the bulletin <laughs> <laughs> um and then also uh, an rsp regular um dr stephen sutcliffe of the university of edinburgh is is now the uh, the president of the british association um and a certain uh, Christopher Cotter has, has stepped in as the, the treasurer mm. and, and Stephen Gregg moves to, um, to the honorary secretary position with Suzanne Owen staying in her stalwart position, um, editing, uh, the journal Discus. Um, so there's, uh, there's been a, a change in personnel, um, a sort of <laughs> embedding of RSP individuals into the structure. Well, all, it, it all, unintentionally. All RSP um, friends uh, there now. Uh, the one person on the committee, of course, that we haven't interviewed would be Dominic Curry, right? Um, and we do have an interview with him coming up later this year, um, recorded at the uh, BASR yeah. conference. Uh, uh, and that, that's on teaching and learning in contemporary religious studies, which is something that is very dear to our hearts at the RSP and is, is one of Dominic's, um, major areas of focus. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the, one of the top guys in Britain on that subject. So, um, yeah, that'll be an excellent interview, I'm sure. Yeah. So as ever, thanks to the BASR. Thanks, um, to all of you who have used our various Amazon links. Um, it doesn't cost you anything, uh, but it, it makes us a significant amount of money. Remember Facebook and Twitter. Um, keep up with the banter and the knowledge exchange there. 
And apart from that, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.